0: This is Decentralized, the Decentralized Trials and Research Podcast. We gather here with friends and guests to talk about the latest ways to make research and clinical trials around the world more inclusive, more accessible, more resilient, and more sustainable, all by using decentralized methods. This podcast is recorded live on Clubhouse every Friday, 12 to 1 Eastern on the TGIF DCT show at the Decentralized Trials Club. You can join the live sessions and add your voice every Friday at noon Eastern time with the free Clubhouse app by following the Decentralized Trials Club. And of course, subscribe to this podcast on your favorite platform to get notified of new episodes following the club and subscribing will also help you stay current for any of the bonus content we may drop. And now it's time to decentralize. Excellent. And for folks here in the room, welcome. We'll get things started in just a few moments. Uh, Today's topic looks like a good one. Holistic patient support. In decentralized trials. Uh, what do we have to think about beyond just individual uh, technical needs? How far does uh, support have to uh, extend to be really meaningful and impactful and make sure we're meeting the needs of participants and studies that may have less interaction with the traditional site? Keep an eye on the next few weeks as well. Uh, we continue to have a great schedule lined up. Uh, next week on the 15th, uh, we're going to dig deeper into wearables. Uh, we have uh, some friends from Thread, from Actigraph, from Parkcell. That's going to um, build on a, a webinar that was done uh, maybe two weeks ago and just provide an opportunity for kind of a deeper dive on that topic. On April 22nd, we will be demystifying decentralized cancer trials. And we have a great lineup for that conversation with our friend uh, Archana Sa from Medible, as well as uh, Shalan Beg from Science 37 and Hassan Kadim from uh, Bristol Myers. So talking about some of the realities around oncology and decentralized. And then on April 29th, our friend Jane Miles has set up a great topic as we dig into lab specimen logistics in decentralized. So Jane will be here with us along with um, Some folks from IXLAIR on the diagnostic side, and some folks from MRN, one of the uh, leaders in uh, home health services for trials, to help us think through um, that topic together. And that'll take us into May when we are going to talk a bit more about uh, the experience at Vault with their chief medical officer, Alex. Um, and what are some of the competencies and tools that he's found he needs in building out virtual site capabilities. So great topics coming up, but remember these topics come from you in the audience. And so if there are uh, areas that you'd like to make sure we're covering, uh, let Amir and I know. And I see we have Amir and I'm gonna make you a moderator. Welcome Amir. Hi there, welcome everyone. And then we have with us as well uh, Graham Wiley. Graham, let's do a quick audio check. How are you today, Graham? Your um, demuting button is going to be in the lower right, the little microphone. If you want
1: to go to Bingo, it. <laughs> <laughs> can you sure hear me? can
0: Graham. And <laughs> that uh, that microphone button is going to be your uh, best friend here. I was just sharing with Animesh, uh, help us keep background noise down, but. Also, when you um, tap that, it's going to be a good visual cue for us that there's a topic you'd like to jump in on next. Ah, and Graham just found that the uh, mute button is right next to the leave button. So I'm sure we'll bring him back here in a minute. And Jen, how are you today?
2: Hey everyone, I'm doing well. Thanks for having me.
0: With fabulous audio as always. And, uh... <laughs> I know the
2: assignment. <laughs>
0: knows the assignment a good good TikTok reference all right Um, amir anything uh going on in your world that you wanted to uh bring up before we uh before we jump in on today's topic
3: no i think there's lots of news if we have time we can talk about it but i think we've got plenty to be going on with so maybe if we can just introduce our speakers and if we have time there's certainly a lot going on in the drug development world at the moment
0: for sure sure seems to be right Uh, between uh biotech funding and clinical trial and digital funding and all the uh, all the different uh, types of announcements, whether organizational or collaborative that are out there. But this week, uh, I think we have a great topic. We're going to talk about patient support in decentralized trials and how is this different as visits are reduced to a traditional research site, and how do we make sure we're understanding and meeting the needs holistically of a research participant who is Uh, in a trial that may be hybrid or even fully decentralized given the different technologies they may be interacting with given uh some of the concerns they may have around participating uh without some of the traditional high-touch interactions some of this topic was set up by our friends at mrn led by the uh our our friend graham wiley so graham why don't you uh come off of mute just introduce yourself for the audience and if you don't mind share if you have any initial perspective on today's topic around patient support and decentralized
1: okay um thanks craig thanks um so uh my name is is Graham Wiley. I'm the CEO of Medical Research Network. I'm a physician, um, and I've been in the industry thirty-three or more years now. Um, the last sixteen or so as CEO of MRN, and our main objective is to run clinical trials in patients' homes. That's what we that's what we've always done, and and we're therefore an integral part of of DCT, although we're not the um, the technology business per se. Um, my perspective on the question that you're raising is something that we've raised often on and on and comes into the various discussion topics depending on the environment, you know, at different times over the last 15 years. But fundamentally, <clears throat> our, our feeling is around this whole care topic is that patients need a mixture of care and support in a clinical trial. Um, there are lots of different elements to DCT. It's probably not sensible to see them all in the same light, in terms of either their impact on the patient uh, or the trial or the requirement for support. But one of the things I think you can say quite clearly is that patients want to be looked after in a clinical trial. They want to feel important. They want to feel valued. They want to feel that their data makes a difference, um, and. To do that they they need to feel that people are paying attention to them and they're of course patients so that means they need care um so it, it's i think fundamentally important to provide patients with uh, a good mixture of care and support and technology that allows the clinical trial to be done to the best of our ability so um, at its extremes. you know, Fully tech-enabled clinical trials are probably not very high on the scale of caring uh, for the patient. Um, at the other end of the scale, you've got very intense clinical trials with patients visiting the site a lot where there's a lot of care, but it's hugely impactful on the patient's life. So we're looking for a balance somewhere in the middle, but maintaining the care element. That's our basic position.
0: Graham, I want to make sure I'm following. When you say care, do you mean the delivery of healthcare services or are you using care to align more around empathy and uh, and, uh, and, and more active um, engagement and listening? Well, you know, honestly,
1: Craig, I think you need to look at it in, in all of its respects, you know, as a as a physician and a company full of nurses, the Empathic care of patients is is important to us, um, and certainly more so to nurses generally than to physicians. I don't mean to do us down, but um, nurses are the truly empathic part of the healthcare system. Um, so yeah, that's really important, but they also need to get the right medical care and they need to get the right uh, support, the technical care, if you like, for the stuff that they're using in the trial. I think it's it is all of it.
3: So Graham, thank you for starting us in such a lovely way, and as always, you're very thoughtful about it. I also like the way you, you betray being English. You're the first, um, or you're refreshing for a company who says that they're not a technology company here in the U.S. Many people who are not technology companies claim they are because they want to hire multiple So it was it was fun to hear that for sure. Uh, I think that was a great intro for us. Um, love to hear from Jen from a, sort of your perspective as well. Obviously, as a sort of a patient and someone who really on a daily basis tries to crowdsource patients sort of ideas. How are you seeing the space right now? Do patients you know, have any particular views in general about decentralized or where are you coming to this, Jen?
2: Yeah, thanks so much for including me in this conversation. So I am Jen horne I'm the founder and CEO of Savvy Cooperative, and we are a patient co-op that helps innovators connect directly with patients or caregivers to have conversations exactly like this, so they can get input into what they're creating. And so as you can imagine, over the past couple of years, there's been a quite a focus around decentralized trials. And in the numerous projects that we work in this space, like really what we hear from patients is just that they really want options when it comes to how things are rolled out. And what I have personally then seen through the fact that we work across all different therapeutic areas, across all different types of trials, is that Unfortunately, I'm not going to be able to give you an answer that's going to feel super satisfactory that, like, here's the magic roadmap for how to support patients during decentralized trials, because it will depend on the protocol. But to have some sort of, like, high-level takeaways, you know, there are certain times that patients are quite fine engaging with technology, a chat bot, to get some simple FAQs answered. But, you know, to Graham's point about marrying sort of technology with support, Patients also want to know that they, especially if they have something like a suspected adverse event, they're not going to want to deal with the chat bot. They want to be able to get on the phone with somebody immediately. And then there's anywhere in between about the ways that patients want to engage with trial teams. And I think that that's really kind of what we encourage people to think about is when are patients wanting to communicate? what is the modality that they're going to be you know communicating with the team and that's going to vary across different places so just making sure that people understand there's no one-size-fits-all model but that hopefully we can think really really thoughtfully about what a protocol calls for and the types of support that patients want and also the fact that even within one trial patients are going to have different preferences and so you want to be able to design for some optionality there so that patients can have a more personalized experience you know even as we talk about DCTs around more of a hybrid model where you know some people want to be able to go in person versus some people are totally fine having a nurse come to their home we really want to think about that even from a communication and wider support standpoint too
0: Thanks so much for that uh, for that setup, Jen. And and you know I think as we as we keep digging into this, I think this theme certainly around personalization and in individual needs is going to resonate. But I'm also going to be really curious to hear people's thoughts um, over the course of our time together around coordinating our efforts. Uh, I think that the the understanding uh, the ability to meet individual needs when it comes to support is 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 going to seem obvious, but how do we make sure we don't have awkward choppy handoffs and we're not, you know, telling the patient that, well, for this question, there's a different phone number. For this question, the nurse who was just in your house actually has no idea um, how to use that device and can bring no help to you and now you have to call some other company's call center to make that happen. How do we minimize those gaps and those drops and truly provide a coordinated um, holistic front end for participants for to support them uh, when they're doing more on their own from home. So, Animesh, hey, I think that probably sets you up a bit, doesn't it? Yeah, no, no. Uh, thanks, uh, uh, thank, thank you,
4: team. Uh, this is Animesh. Uh, I head the uh, the customer support and the product support functions for IQVIA's RDS business. Uh, you know, was. Fortunate enough to be part of the biggest vaccine trials that we ran uh, on our DCT platform. Uh, so a lot that, lot that I heard from both Graham and Jen, you know, kind of resonates uh, with what we saw during those trials as well, right? So uh, definitely, I think one of the things that uh, you know, we as a support organization, uh, when we started uh, this journey, I think one big thing that, uh, that was a big lesson uh, or, or a big pivot for us was a shift away from what we call as a b2b kind of uh, you know technology consumption to a b2c right because as part of dct uh, you're no longer you know supporting a ctms which is used uh, say by a sponsor user or uh, a portal which is used by a site you are actually giving technology in the hands of the patients uh, and and i think uh, uh, it, it's very important what we what we learned is that it's very important Uh, to be there for the patient, right? So unlike other B2C technology, you know, uh, apps, or uh, you you can't have, uh, you know, uh, like Jen mentioned that, you know, uh, the patients uh, are already, uh, you know, they need care, they need, you know, fast answers. So it cannot be like a bank, you know, call call center where uh, you put somebody on hold for 10 minutes uh, while telling them you are our most important customer and the agent will get to you. Uh, Because there could be, you know, compliance deadlines that they have to meet, they have to fill a diary before midnight. Uh, you know and if they're not able to get uh, to you know that screen uh, they may uh, miss uh, e-diary which may be a compliance issue as well right or uh, if they are having an adverse event uh, we don't want to be saying that hey you're calling a contact center uh, it's a tech uh, support for adverse event call somebody else right Uh, so so absolutely you know the focus from from, at least for us and and uh, for all the support organizations has to be around uh, putting the patient at the center of this experience right so so for the patient it should be very very seamless on when they're calling for help or when they're calling for support, uh, you know, it, it it should be very seamless. It cannot be a handoff, uh, you know, from team A to team B or from company A to company B. Uh, you have to work on putting, you know, as, the, as part of the protocol design or as part of the study setup, uh, we have to think of support and we, we need to actually put in, you know, I would say, plumbing at the back end to make sure that we can transfer calls, say, from one contact center to the other contact center while you know the patient is still with us right the other aspect that that we learned uh, or that was you know that we kind of factored in uh, was uh, as part of global trials uh, you have to make sure that you are serving the patients in the language that they understand right uh, it gets down to the point of uh, not just the language even the dialect that they speak uh, you know for example Uh, the way people speak Portuguese in Brazil is very different than the way they speak Portuguese in Portugal right so so just to say that I will have a Portuguese speaker on my contact center who is going to you know respond to a call coming in from Brazil uh, is not enough it has to be in the dialect as well right so 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 it's it's absolutely essential that uh, you know you are serving the patients putting them right front and center of whatever support strategy you're designing and then also uh, you know making sure that uh, you know the Uh, the the whole experience that the patient has right Uh, at at any point in time when they're dealing with the support personnel whether it's a contact center agent or it's a you know escalated uh, ticket that has gone to somebody else uh, they are you know the 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 agents on the other line are very empathetic right so that that's something that we you know uh, constantly uh, you know work with our teams to make sure that you know the first and foremost skill that we look for is empathy right tech skills everything else can be trained uh, but you have to be empathetic when somebody is calling to you uh, and asking for some support for you know for any technology or even if they want to know something about hey uh, you know when is my next visit even though this is not a purely technical support question uh, you know you need to make sure that you have built those uh, you know workflows where you are able to answer those questions or or at least you know uh, transfer them to the right uh, you know the maybe the, uh, the site operations team or maybe the you know you're the clinical trial project team to make sure that they're able to answer those questions for the patients as well.
0: Oh, that's really helpful. Can you can you share an example? I imagine that there are a few um, um, archetypes, a few different ways that this can look. Uh, IQVIA is a big organization. In one scenario, you may be using just an IQVIA stack of visiting nurses and and ePro and eConsent and connected device infrastructure, but in many instances. As you were hinting at, you may be a part of a network with other solution providers. Is there an example of of success that you can point to in terms of how to make those types of handoffs really feel seamless to the to the participant?
4: Yeah, no, absolutely, Craig. So, so I think one of for one of our vaccine trials, uh, we actually our EDC platform was uh, through a different company, right? Uh, uh, and even within IQ, we are right? Uh, you know, we uh, you know we've grown through acquisition, so you know, one of our uh, one of our you know components for that dc trial was through uh, a company that we had acquired which that they, they were in contact center now as we started building out the support model for that study uh, you know we actually reached out you know to the other companies saying that hey what is your uh, you know support uh, numbers you know uh, if if we get a, t- a call for your uh, you know uh, for for an issue that could be in your system right, right let us who do we who do we transfer the call to who do we need to reach out to uh, our endeavor was to never tell the patient that hey you go call somebody else right. Uh, it was you know uh, making sure that our agents are trained that if somebody calls in saying hey I have a problem with the EDC or a site calls in saying I have a patient on site and I'm having problems you know uh, entering through the EDC. Uh, we don't want to tell them hey, go call this number right. So we actually you know worked with our uh, infrastructure team we worked with the uh, uh, the other partners infrastructure team as well to make sure that we are able to transfer the calls seamlessly so, so for the site uh, it was it was very transparent whether they are calling iqia or whether they're calling uh, our partner over there
3: this is amir the quick question for uh, all three of our guest speakers um You know, Jen hinted at kind of the sometimes suboptimal bot experience or technology experience. We've all had it probably with airlines and others who've been far earlier to this than clinical trials, and I know uh, companies like Graham's, you know, were flooded with, you know, cause all of a sudden, at the beginning of the pandemic with companies who suddenly decided that, yes, they needed at home uh, help. Um, I'm just wondering where we are right now, what you're hearing, whether Jen, from your perspective, hearing from your patients in your group, Graham, from you trying to manage the workload and the amount of, you know, nurses you need to do that. How How in general are we feeling around how well our technologies are serving patients and how well our, uh, you know, just talent, do we have enough talent? Is there been a real crunch? Is it like Starbucks where it's closed because they can't get enough baristas? What is going on at the moment in your experience at this point, sort of post-mid pandemic versus before? Like, where are we at? I'd love to hear, how let alone the optimal thing but how are we serving our patients at the moment from both a technology point of view and a talent point of view actually humans who can do the work i would love to hear if people have had any current sort of thoughts on that
1: July, I, I kick off then
3: sure please um, Go ahead, Graham. um c-
1: capacity and infrastructure is fine there are no major supply chain issues uh in our sector today and here i'm talking about the nursing services and patients home and the various component pieces that go with that it's a um there's plenty of capacity in the system uh so uh, you know there is a, a worldwide shortage of nurses but that has been for 20 years so um that's not new the the, the the risk that we see moment to moment is that uh, as the new variants of the pandemic come and go, if the healthcare system gets overwhelmed in a locality, then all the nurses and doctors are kind of pulled into that and other things can be difficult to resource. But in the vast majority of cases, that is not sufficient to prevent... Um, the sort of home the home healthcare and and support, so i haven't seen really any particular problem there i think um, if I was to point at anything at the moment that is uh, the the most obvious component of what's going on in the industry it's that the the growth of the industry uh, is making it look a little bit a bit like a patch of weeds um and I don't mean that in a negative sense I think that's both in customers and in Suppliers, um, a lot of new people coming into industry who are uh, relatively early in their career in DCT, and still have a lot to learn, a lot to find out about what's already available, let alone the innovations that are coming down the pike. So, I I see a lot. I see we we've reverted to a feeling of what it was like, at least for us at MRN, maybe ten years ago when everybody we spoke to was, um, was still very inexperienced in how any of this works. So with the, the massive increase in the market capacity, we've seen a lot of, of um, new people come in who need a lot of uh, support and education to work within the sector effectively.
3: Great. Thank you, Jen. And um, Anamish, do you want to comment on that?
2: Yeah, I'll build off of that. I mean, I think one of the things I'm sitting here wrestling with is the fact that I know we're talking about call centers and things like this, but from the patient perspective, a lot of the time they are they don't know the difference. They don't know I'm calling a call center. I'm calling, you know, the trial yeah. site. I'm calling my nurse directly. So really thinking about like, what is that patient experience and how is that being communicated? Because I can't answer how are they feeling? Because we don't always have those clear the clear information from who the patient is calling, because it's not made clear to them, if that makes sense. So yeah, I think it's just sure. really being thoughtful there.
4: Yeah, no, absolutely, Jen. And and, and that, that's, I think that's, uh, you know, one of the things that uh, that we need to consider as we start talking about supporting patients on decentralized trials, right? Uh, the To your point, right, the patient could be reaching out to the site, right, saying, hey, I have this issue and I'm not able to, you know, do my e-diary or I'm not able to uh, you know, send a sample in. Uh, they may they may directly reach out to us, right? Uh, saying I have this issue. And and to your point, you know, uh, uh, it, it's uh, we always need to close the loop uh, between the patient and the site, right? So so the, we definitely need to know let the site also know uh, that hey, you know what we heard from your patients, uh, you know, and and they called in uh, for so and so issue, or they let us, or they, or they you know, kind of uh, had this challenge, and 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 we, uh, you know, we, we solved it for them, or uh, there are times when sites call in on behalf of patients right like you said the patient would reach out to the pi or to the uh, nursing staff saying "Hey, i have this challenge uh, and they would you know in turn call us and we'll have to kind of uh, uh, work you know with both the patient and the site to fix the issue and to close that uh, i think one of the things that we definitely did uh, you know learn and and uh, to your point is around being very uh, you know i would say uh, support or, or, or trying to you know uh, inform or or you know make sure that uh, both sites and patients know right what are the commu- communication channels that they have uh, uh, again and an intention is never to get between the site and the patient so if the if the patient feels comfortable reaching out to the site and then you know through them uh, reaching out uh, to us you know that's also fine or if they want to reach out directly that's also fine right so so I think I think the you know it's, it's very important to make sure that the patients uh, have a variety of options to, to to reach out uh, for support rather than you know telling them that uh, you know for this you call this and for this you call the other number right uh, and that's how you know when you when you start thinking about how you support uh, patients and because like i said earlier right i mean it's it's uh, it, you know it it depends on the protocol it depends on the demography of the patients as well right how comfortable they are using technology how comfortable they are uh, you know, uh, working, uh, you know, on an app or something like that, right? So, so it, so it, it, depends on that as well. And as you design, you know, you can't have a one size fits all model saying that, you know, my support will work like this for all studies, right? It, it, you have to factor in, uh, the demography, the geography, uh, you know, uh, the therapeutic area as well. Uh, you know, if it's a pediatric trial, uh, guess what you will have caregivers calling in, right? So, so you have to kind of factor all of those things in, uh, and then come out with a, you know, with a, with a holistic strategy in terms of how uh, you know how you going to support the patients like uh, what are the channels that you want Uh, and and again this is not a contact center channel I am talking about right whether you want them to call you directly whether you want them to call them to the site uh, you know whether you want them to send an email uh, or enable that so so we have to make sure that they have variety of options out there uh, you know in case they are having uh, issues uh, with the technology uh, for them uh, for us to support them.
0: Graham, I have to imagine that you know, in the real world, your nurses going into people's homes are going to be very often the front end and maybe receive the brunt of frustration that a patient might have with technology that they were given. And um, I'm sure that there's a best case scenario in terms of how your nurses can be positioned to be supportive and helpful there. Um, how how do you encourage people to think about leveraging? The nursing staff in a positive way here, and also avoiding putting your people in, uh, you know, to be the the brunt of frustration that patients may be feeling.
1: Yeah, it's an interesting question, um, and you know, to be um, just to be clear and transparent, the number of clinical trials in which all the different services operate together is still really small today. So, the total experience. Around the the full depth of that challenge, I think is still pretty limited. But um, I think there's a couple of interesting components to this. The first one is that there, it's a very strong bond. If if it gets a chance to form properly, then the bond between a nurse and a patient is quite a strong one, and it tends to be trust driven. I mean, it doesn't always work, but um, Therefore, although the nurses will be coming into some what can be difficult situations from time to time, generally that relationship with the patient remains um, positive. The <clears throat> um, where I think we, we need the sophistication that uh, Animesh is, is talking about uh, in particular is that people like my nurses themselves will need support you can't take, there's there's almost no one on this planet, you could just stick into a patient's home or on the end of a phone and they know the answer to all the questions. So they have to be able to take the human interaction and themselves have the support available to be able to um, provide whatever answers they can to a patient and to support them with the technology that they might be facing. I mean, I, you know, Having also run a business for many years, there's there's not many things that can reduce uh, a very professional person working in an office to tears, but bad tech is one of them. Um, it's very frustrating, isn't it? If it doesn't work, really frustrating. Um, <clears throat> so that let, the support you need has to be much higher than kind of theory would suggest. So the whole hypercare model, I think, is very important when you're looking at patients in these vulnerable positions nurses who don't necessarily understand the technology in the right amount of depth either um and their reliance on um support functions from elsewhere um oh, I, I would just add with one little caveat you know i don't know how many of you have tried to phone a site uh, using the emergency phone numbers It's um an exercise that I would recommend to you all occasionally as a test, uh, and I'll put I'll put ten pounds on the table now that says that you'll go through the voicemail. Uh, the the whole process that we have today around support is is already poor, and that's just starting from the baseline. Does that answer your mere, question? Um,
0: absolutely amir i think we've got some great chat flying around both in the one-on-ones and in the group so uh, what do you say we open things up yes please yeah absolutely Excellent. Do, do you want to reset the room first sure for folks that are just joining us welcome this is tgif dct we gather here in clubhouse every friday 12 to 1 eastern and cover a range of different topics related to decentralized clinical trials this is a recurring room and it's open for all the topics and themes come from you the audience and so if there are topics that you'd like to see us cover in upcoming weeks please uh let amir and myself know follow the decentralized trials club you can do that just by on the top left of your screen tapping decentralized trials and from there you'll be able to access replays of all of our gatherings dating back to december as well as see what's coming up in the weeks ahead Um, Amir is also a great reminder for me that make sure you're tapping the profiles, not only of speakers, but others that are here in the room with you. They're sharing your interest. They may be also some great people to connect with and follow on social. Uh, Now's a great time for you. If you have questions, ideas, uh, thoughts on this topic, go ahead, use the little hand raising icon in the lower right. Uh, We'll be happy to bring you up on stage to hear your thoughts and perspectives. And to get us started, why don't we turn over to our friend Ritesh Patel. Ritesh, please introduce yourself if there's someone out in the cyber universe who doesn't know you and share your thoughts today. (laughs) Thanks, Craig. Craig was actually
5: going to call me out again on this one to be uh, to come on. So I beat him to it. Uh, Ritesh Patel, I work at Finn Partners. I've been doing this digital health thing for about 10 years or so. And I was chatting, I was listening to all of you and I was chatting with Craig uh, on uh, on the back channel saying, I think one of the issues we face here is that we've always tried to make this something special. Uh, And I would suggest that we should look at how hospitals are rolling out remote patient management monitoring, digital front doors, all of the things that technology is now allowing us to do, where some patients are pretty much okay. I was in a patient's home the other day where there was a a home dialysis machine rolled in, and they did the dialysis at home rather than going to the hospital because they have no way of getting transport to the hospital. So hospitals are out there rolling these things out, and maybe what we need to do is look at how they're engaging with patients remotely with these kinds of things. The workflows and the experiences they're creating and embedding our clinical workflows into those rather than trying to define a new workflow that a patient has to do to participate in a trial i was also i do a lot of work with investigators and you know the cras are buried in most cases the nurses are buried at sites they've got so much to do which is why graham when you said have you tried phone calling somebody later I've done that, actually, and I agree with you. I, I think, you know, changing that model and changing that to to be part of that workflow uh, would be very interesting. So rather than defining it as a separate thing you have to do, could we piggyback off what hospitals are starting to do now here in the US already, and just in, integrating clinical into that workflow uh, may be a good way of looking at it.
0: Some great themes here, Ritesh, and uh, I know you're going to have to drop in a minute, but I don't know if there is feedback from any of the uh, other guests, Graham, uh, Animesh, about uh, perhaps how we think about some of these solutions integrating with the rest of the connected care universe that patients in health systems around the world are increasingly connecting with yeah,
4: no, no, absolutely Craig. Uh, I think I think that, that that definitely a very good point uh, to your point. I mean, from a patient perspective, I think they want uh, you know their experiences not to be very different when they're dealing uh, with a hospital in a medical setting versus a clinical setting, right? So so definitely something that uh, you know, we are also looking at to see how we can uh, model some of the workflows, especially the patient journeys uh, in our DCT. Uh, on lines of what uh, what uh, you know what's happening in the uh, in the hospital domain so so I think definitely something that uh, is is a work in progress and, and I think it makes a lot more sense uh, to align uh, as much as possible your processes and workflows with uh, what a hospital typically does right because that reduces the burden of training both on the sites uh, you know the nurses as well uh, as well as
0: on the patients uh, too. It's a great example. This is Craig. When I was at uh, Pfizer, we had a public uh, collaboration we had announced with Auctioner Health in Louisiana here in the U.S. And one of the reasons for that collaboration was because of the OBAR model that Auctioner had installed in half a dozen or more at the time of the hospitals in their health system. A genius bar like model for helping to support patients in the health system who were being directed to use certain connected devices, and how might we leverage that type of infrastructure uh, that already existed and was being uh, deployed. So I think it's a it's a great reminder for us to, to start by looking at perhaps at what types of solutions are already available there. Um, we did lose Jen, which is not an accident. She did caution that she had to drop off here, and she was being graceful and stepping away uh, quietly but we, uh, we have Graham Animesh and Amir and myself, and we have coming up next Jane Miles. Jane, please come on off mute, introduce yourself, share your thoughts, questions, perspective, including maybe a little bit of your own experience with d- dialysis in the home.
6: Oh, interesting. So my name's Jane Miles and I work at Curebase, which is a DCT tech and service provider. And um, a question I was gonna try and resist I promise but I couldn't so I'm curious from Graham and anyone else who wishes to answer I loved your point about how the trust relationship develops between the home nurse and the patient and my question is a two-parter one how often is the physician who's actually conducting the research new to the patient as well as the nurse? So how does that change the support model or have you encountered that? And then how often do you find that you need to invoke a telehealth link to join that physician and nurse? I I don't need numbers. I'm sort of looking for your experience on how that factors into the patient support model. And we can talk about home dialysis later if you wish.
1: Um, <clears throat> Jane, it's, it's Graham here. Um, the, the, the second part of your question, I think, is, is very uh, – I'll answer that first. Um, today, in almost all Western medical environments, patients are dealt with by multiple physicians all the time. And, in fact, the integration between systems and data in the healthcare environment is is pretty poor uh, around the world. And the, um, the clinical trial world isn't going to do itself any favours by saying, let's get all that fixed and then the clinical trials are easy because this problem isn't going to get fixed in short order. Uh, what that means is that patients are quite used to dealing with multiple different physicians and different healthcare professionals. So, I I would say um, that the important element of of what's happening in the relationship here is um, is how the 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 cold face activities are supported by the individuals. So I'm avoiding here talking about nurses per se, but nurses build a very um, clear relationship with the patient as they come into their home on a regular basis, which physicians, of course, never do. Um, the physician relationship is usually a bit different. Um, and as long as they are you know, fully competent and understand the person that's in front of them and treat them like human beings with respect and appropriate care then they'll probably do pretty well. Um, so what I'm saying is we're not looking for perfection here. We're looking for people who can build relationships effectively and make sure that works in clinical trials. And I think that's going to be key when it comes down to patients feeling cared for. The second part of your question, or the other part of your question related to telemedicine, Um it's a really interesting component, this. As far as we can tell from the data that's available in the databases at the moment, telemedicine is by far and away the most common increase in DCT during the pandemic. And it probably represents something like 50% of all recorded cases in the databases where they say, and we did DCT, and the type of DCT we did was, was telemedicine. In most cases, we believe, and limited proof for this, that that is uh, mostly things like Zoom and Teams and other what you would probably call telecommunication solutions rather than medical solutions for um, communication with the patient. But I do think, I do agree with you that that link is, is probably one of the most innovative and helpful links moving into a, an environment where patients don't come into the site very often, because it's a, a much better communication tool than picking up the phone. So if the physician is actually talking to a patient and a nurse at the same time in the patient's home, that strikes me as as we're really getting towards a sort of virtual clinical, um, a virtual clinic type structure. And I think that's that is going to be really powerful because you can get nurses in the home, you can get tech in the home, but it's hard to put a physician in the home. And if you can stick them in the home through telemedicine and they can all talk to each other, it's like they're together at the hospital. And I I think that's gonna be really important, but I don't think it's common today. I think it's really uncommon.
6: Thank you, Graham. And I think that it's not uncommon for some of the folks who are working on the solutions to believe that that telelink is common. So I'm, I'm with you, I think it could be a game changer and I'd like to see it used more. This is Jane and I'm signing off.
0: Thanks so much Jane, as always. Uh, why don't we turn over to Yupinder. Yupinder, please come on off mute, introduce yourself for the audience, share your question or perspective today.
7: Hi, uh, thanks, Craig. Um, can you guys hear me okay? Because I think whilst the Graeme yeah. was speaking, OK, fantastic. So my name is Upinder. I work for uh, Bayer Pharmaceuticals, and uh, I'm working in the area of decentralized clinical trials. Um, so I, I wanted to kind of come on today and actually share some uh, experience and some kind of comments and uh, that we've kind of seen and heard. Um, so I actually ran a, a small, uh, complete virtual study. Uh, very recently, we completed it. It was done with Stanford University. And um, we had about... Uh, Um, I mean, we can talk the recruitment stuff later, but we had an overwhelming response on people wanting to actually recruit into the study. Um, One of the things that we actually did find, uh, which was surprising a little bit to to us, is that, um, you know, if a patient drops out of a study because of the science, you kind of understand it. But if a patient drops out of the study because they don't like the technology or the technology is not working for them, that almost becomes unacceptable. And so when when uh, Animesh was kind of talking and saying that one of the first things they do is to try and look for uh, empathy and uh, call centers having training and empathy, I think that's kind of music to my ears because that's actually lacking from a lot of call centers. I mean, I, I've actually uh, pretended to be a patient and with the supplies that we work on, and I want to be careful just in case there's people here that I do work with, but I do actually pretend to be a patient actually uh, see what the call center is like for myself because i want to actually experience what the patient's experience before we actually hand it over to the patient uh, and i have to say empathy and the training of empathy and ownership is kind of missing with with, with a lot of people out there i mean they, they if you ever speak to companies they'll turn around and say oh well we you know we look at our agents who have got experience in you know five plus years of, of of call center experience and other things but um you know when you go into things like well you know what about the softer skills how do you do that and, and that's kind of lacking um um, it, you know, the this whole thing about providing support to the sites as well as the patients, it's very, very important as we start adopting more and more technologies. We don't want to be losing sites and patients because the technology is not working. Um, there are different companies looking at this different ways, um, which is, you know, one way is let's just go with one integrated provider and therefore, you know, their call centre can manage everything. I mean, that, that, that's one option people look at. Um, there's another option, which is, you know, could we uh, completely outsource the, the call centre and therefore we'll take ownership of the call centre? And look at that. Um, you know, uh, I've also seen uh, Roche, they've started to uh, deploy digital assistance. And I think they're actually now doing that in clinical trials as well as um, for other things as well, where they start to roll out chatbots and more digital assistance out to patients and providing more digitized kind of support. But uh, the other model which I've seen, and I, I'm kind of yet to uh, really see this in use, is the kind of use of uh, behavioral science actually, and use of data and analytics to almost preempt an issue coming up and actually uh, proactively call up a patient or a site and say, now we realise that there could be a problem coming up, or we we think you have a problem. Is everything okay? And 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 you know anything we can do and kind of doing that, um, you know interacting that way. So I think there's different models, but um, and I I I'm not too sure what the right model is yet. But I I you know what I would say with experience, we need to get this right, and we need to get it right from the from the get go because um, you know just to kind of reiterate what I said, if patients are dropping out because they do not like the technology or it's not working for them. No, that that would be in my eyes that would be unacceptable. And uh, this is your Pinder, and uh, I'd like to sign off.
4: Hey, Yupinder, this is Anime here, and 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 thank you for uh, the kind words. And and I, I think totally agree with you, right? I mean, uh, technology becoming a barrier for patients to participate in the trial, uh, I think is definitely a big area of concern, right? Uh, and and I think that, like like I mentioned earlier, right, the. Uh, the added, I would say, uh, complexity here is that uh, when you when you have the technology, you know, uh, outside of a controlled environment, right, uh, say of a uh, of your own company or uh, you know at somebody's home, there are hundred different things that could go wrong, right? Hey, the Wi-Fi connectivity was poor. That's the reason why you know that tech didn't work. Uh, or I mean, we've seen in sites as well that sites have put a firewall, and you know if your IP is not whitelisted, guess what? Your data is not going through. Uh, so so, so I think, uh, you know, uh, the, uh, to your point, there's a lot of ways to go, uh, you know, in terms of uh, making sure that tech works seamlessly. Uh, and while those things are being ironed out, right, it is absolutely essential that uh, you have a, a very strong support model in place, uh, you know, for both patients and sites, right? I think uh, earlier, I have mentioned uh, that, you know, uh, it's, it's very frustrating for a nurse or for a uh, PI uh, to be you know trying to sort tech issues for patients right uh, so so absolutely that uh, you know you need to make sure that uh, You know your support model is working and supporting both uh, because uh, like what we saw in vaccine trials uh, You are you know people are already stressed out right when they are in a You know in a potentially high-risk situation where you know they, they've called patients to site and they're trying to administer vaccines to them right there already there is a heightened sense of risk uh, because they are in an environment where there could be other COVID patients, uh, you know, and and, and and if the tech doesn't work at that point in time, you know, it's the worst experience somebody could have, right? So, so definitely, uh, you know, something that uh, we, uh, you know, as service providers, definitely want to make sure that we are... Uh, and that's the reason why, for example, some of the SLAs that we signed up for for some of these trials was very, very stringent, right? Like I said, uh, you know you if you call a bank you'll probably be waiting in line for three three minutes or more uh in our case we we said hey you know what we don't want a patient to wait more than 10 seconds on a call right so as soon as they navigate the ivrs you know the agent or the other shed other end should pick up the phone in 10 seconds right uh, so so it, it's a, it's a very high touch requirement uh, you know given the given the nature of business we are in uh and i think as we till we get to a point where you know the tech is really really mature and uh, is you know self-healing and can you know kind of uh, sort issues on its own. A lot of them. Uh, this this will not this will continue to be high-touch uh, requirement or a high-touch support requirement for uh, for
0: service providers. You know, there's um, a yes and Anamash, that uh, pinder brought up that I, I I love, which is this this theme about well, we've been talking about holistic and we've been talking about. Um, you know, so many attributes around coordination, but Upinder brought up um, prediction and our ability to predict and anticipate needs of research participants. Maybe that means we're paying better attention to some of the metadata (lowercase m) wrapped around that that experience and trying to identify and understand where a need may be emerging. Anamesh, are you starting to see opportunities to uh, to build out in that direction and be more predictive? Uh, yeah, so I mean, it's 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 early days yet,
4: uh, Craig. So, for example, uh, you know, in our case, uh, you know, when we started this journey, and we, you know, now, now there are certain you know uh, compliance regulations that also uh, drive, I would say, call volumes, right? So, for example, you have to have a ninety-day password reset policy, uh, which you typically don't have, say, in a Google or an Amazon, right? Uh, so you, so you know, for for your DCT systems, uh, you you need to follow, you know, uh, CFR Part Eleven guidelines. You need to have you know password reset policies and all, uh, you know. So we, you know, so it took us a couple of cycles uh, to get, uh, you know, to a point where we could start predicting that, hey, you know what, we probably will see a spike in our you know, call volumes because of people calling in for password resets, or even though we have self capability, like I said, not everybody is comfortable with the tech. Uh, you know, you would see that happening. So, so the way we tackled it was proactively, you know, started uh, monitoring at the back end. Uh, you know, wh- where, where are, uh, you know, what are the, uh, say. Uh, you know, which all users are in you know, our next next few days. Uh, you know, the passwords are going to expire, right? And and you start reaching out to them, you know, via different channels, uh, you know, upfront, saying, hey, you know, what we we just just a reminder, you you your password may, might expire. Uh, by the way, anything else that we can do for you? Uh, so I think we we definitely saw an improvement in the patient experience uh, when we started doing things, right? But again, those are like I said, uh, basic table stakes kind of things. And and we are looking at more and more data coming in, right? One thing that we uh, that we saw as part of our vaccine trials again was even sponsors are very very interested in support ticketing data right so so earlier they were more interested you know I, I, they, they were not that interested in how many calls you got what kind of calls you got right uh, what were the problem areas you know which sites called for what kind of issues so so we we've now also you know uh, given that there is so much interest of sponsors you know we need to provide a better level of service uh, we are investing a lot into analytics of our ticketing systems as well right hey you know what what are the just just like that right hey what is it that we're getting what are the patients calling for right how can we improve the experience and then that also kind of makes it a feedback loop into our engineering team saying hey guys you know what this seems to be a problem area for our patients you know let's let's make sure that we prioritize this as a functional uh, enhancement to our system uh, which goes in the next couple of years right so I think I think we are working on that and that is going to be a continuous loop you know going forward as well
0: Thanks so much, Alan uh, uh,
7: uh, Craig, can I just add one thing? I think this is something that we certainly, I mean, we, we, we need to do more and we need to do better on this because, um, you know, one of the traps that we kind of fall into, and, and I'm going to put my hands up because right at the start, you know, uh, I was completely guilty of this. You know, when we worked with service providers, one of the metrics we'd always uh, sort of look at was uh, help desk tickets, the number of help desk tickets. And we look at that and, and, you know, when there'd be an issue with the supply, we look at the help test tickets and say, well, the help test tickets are low. So therefore, there can't be a problem. Um, But what we found afterwards was that the sites um, actually got fed up of calling the suppliers uh, uh, um, helplines and they're actually starting to complain directly to the CRAs. And the CRAs are picking up the issues and we're trying to resolve it. And we're kind of oblivious to that because what we were measuring was the number of uh, tickets raised to the help desk, and, and you know if the sites weren't getting the answer that they wanted and getting frustrated, they stopped calling the help desk, and 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 then that's where, it, it, you know, we, we were just not picking this up. So I think uh, being proactive is something that we need to improve upon, uh, and I think that uh, you know some of the analytics, science, and uh, behavioral stuff, with things maybe that's maybe that's. Yeah, no, absolutely, team.
4: as well, absolutely, up and 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 I mean that's I mean, from our perspective. Also, that's the learning, right? I mean, we saw so 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 when I, when I say tickets, we we don't look at just the calls coming through the help desk, right? We also look at uh, you know our CRA is raising tickets on our internal ticketing system for sites, right? So so it's it's a it's a it's a basically uh, the you know the ticketing information coming from multiple sources, right? Uh, which we kind of collate and then the analytics on. So so you're absolutely right. A lot of times, sites will not. Call us directly. They or call the contact center. They would reach out to the C R A, and then the C R A would reach out to us, right? So, so we we keep track of all those kind of things as well. Uh, okay. And sorry, Craig, if you don't mind, I saw a couple of points uh, on the chat where people said that you know they, uh, and rightfully so, right? They don't don't want to take cold calls. So, just want to kind of clarify that you know uh, the way we work around that is uh, we typically send an email to the patient first, right? Asking for a uh, asking for a scheduled appointment. If 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 we have to make a call, right? Most of the communication we try through email. Uh, but if we do have to do a callback, uh, we first try to set up time either through the site or through an email and only when the patient consents is then when we call them back on their number.
0: Thanks so much, Anamesh. You know, one thing I love about this forum is the diversity of uh, of our audience and perspectives from technologists, operations leaders and the research site leaders themselves. And so uh, Brad Hightower, welcome. Why don't you uh, come on off mute, introduce yourself to the audience, share your perspective on today's topic.
8: Hey, thanks, Craig. Uh, yeah, my name's Brad. I operate a uh, rather a small site network here in the middle of the U.S. And uh, it's a very interesting conversation. And I feel like when when I see the term holistic patient support and I think about that in terms of a clinical trial, uh, I think that that role is very much lines up with what a research coordinator already does at the site level. And, uh, you know, in a lot of instances I find I'll do everything that I can to keep my patient from having to call in to the different vendor services. You know, we very much already sort of act as that liaison and try to pro- provide that support as holistically as possible to the patient. So, I mean, is it possible that, We just see an expansion of that role uh, as DCT becomes more prevalent. I mean, the coordinators are developing relationships with these patients. They call us anytime there's a problem. I mean, does it really need to, do we need to complicate things by creating, you know, all these different points of contact or does the clinical research coordinator role just start to shift into almost more of a, you know, an account manager type position, maybe for lack of a better word? But I mean, does that seem Completely unreasonable. I mean, that's really my only thought as I uh, sort of hear this this conversation. That's, well, that's Brad.
0: It. I'd love to. Um, I'd love to put the question back to you. And uh, you know, thinking about because you're absolutely right. This is what coordinators have done for years, both over the phone, but of course, even more importantly, in person when patients come in. As these studies have become increasingly complex with technologies, devices, uh, video, and all these other interfaces. What's needed for today's study coordinator to be able to provide support across all of these tools? Um, is it fair for to ask them to become kind of the technical help desk the way we have been?
8: I, I mean, frankly, I, in some ways, think that that would be willingly accepted by a site coordinator if they had the support in turn. So if I give an e-diary to a patient but I don't have a good insight as to how that e-diary works because once I hand it to them, I don't know what, what happens. If I can support them, I'm happy to do it. Again, it strengthens our relationship, uh, with the patient, which is of very high importance to continue, you know, retention and engagement where I'm not telling them, sorry, that's not our problem. Go call the help desk. So I think if the coordinators were provided better support on the front end, they would be, again, I'm speaking from personal experience, others may beg to differ. I think that role would, you know, be well welcomed in a lot of ways by by the sites and the site coordinators.
4: Yeah, hey, Craig, if you don't mind, I'll jump in here. And, and Brad, absolutely with you on that, right? I, th- I think uh, the, the, the coordinators, uh, you know, for lack of a better word, are probably the at the front line of this, right? And, and, and it goes back to another point that Graham uh, made earlier. Uh, in terms of, you know, how are we supporting the nursing staff or the uh, the site coordinators, right? Uh, one of the things that we found, uh, you know, effective is that there has to be, uh, you know, uh, it has to be constant f- loop going back to, uh, you know, a- again, as the technology matures, right, you need to make sure that you are constantly reinforcing the, the learning or the training for the sites as well, right? So it cannot be once and done. Uh, you you know as it when you know you are for example you bring a new feature in right or or, or you're bringing you know you uh, you're trying to educate or, or trying to help the coordinators uh, do some basic troubleshooting which they can do for their patients right uh, so, so you need to constantly keep uh, you know sending out materials communication training to the site staff as well in terms of how to support their patients for some of the basic technical needs but one thing to keep in mind is that you know and this goes back to Graham's point another point earlier where you know if you call the site after hours uh, bear in mind right the now the the, the duration or the, the time period during the day when the trial is being conducted is not 24 hours 7 because the patient is sitting at their home and they could be you know completing E D I at 9 p.m. at night uh, where nobody from the site or the coordinator is available right In the, in those cases you still need the infrastructure to support them at, if you know, at nine or eleven in the night, if they need uh, uh, help with a technical issue, they need a place uh, to to reach out and call out, uh, uh, you know, for support. Because otherwise, you could be hitting compliance issues. You know, if you missed the e diary for the day, it could become a compliance issue later on as well.
8: Yes, yeah, so, fair, and they do, they do that. I mean, again, we as coordinators, I guarantee you, go talk to a coordinator and tell, tell me, show me someone who hasn't gotten a call at eleven o'clock at night and try to walk somebody through a an e diary. But I do, I. I respect your point, and again, maybe that's a shift in the expectation uh, of, of the site, or again, maybe I'm wrong, but that, that's, that seems to be my, that's my inclination.
3: So I think, Brad, most people would agree with you that in the ideal scenario, it will be great for patients to have a trusted relationship with someone like a coordinator to do that. I think as everyone's pointing out, I think part of the role of maybe call centres, part of it is supporting the study personnel like coordinators, right, to have access to information they need and support them. I think the other issue which I'm sure you would agree with is I'm not sure that sponsors have really kept up with budgeting for resources within the site uh, considering the increased complexity right of our trials and all the, all the issues of support we're talking about. So I think that we still need to do better on that, but it seems to me these are so sort of complementary things that we need to support coordinators give sites the right resourcing but then use technology uh, in you know global scale where we're really you know trying to support the actual staff and uh, the sites to really try and help patients with multiple you know different vendors multiple different technologies etc craig would you agree with that
0: i think that's a great uh, great closing perspective right i mean there's the, these um so much of what we're talking about are really just natural extensions of models that have worked. Uh, patients have been well supported by study coordinators. I think the question is as these archetypes of decentralized research continue to evolve, if If participants are coming in less frequently, is it the coordinator expanding their remit and tools and scope to be able to provide that support? And what does that look like as studies are fully decentralized? But this has been, I think, an amazing discussion. I'm so grateful to uh, Graham and your team at MRN for setting this up. Uh, uh, Anamesh for taking the time from uh, a few time zones away to be able to join and and contribute such important perspective. Jennifer Hornjeff, who had to step away. And of course, the voices that jumped up here on stage with us, uh, Ritesh, Shane, Upinder, and Brad, uh, very uh, grateful to you all. Um, Amir, as always, we have some great uh, sessions coming up. Next week, we're going to go deeper again around wearables, this time picking up on a webinar conversation that was had with leaders from Thread and Actigraph and Excel on the topic. So we're going to keep that conversation going here on Clubhouse. Uh, The week after that, we'll uh, get into a topic I'm really looking forward to, decentralized oncology trials, to uh, bring in. Some of uh, my favorite voices on that topic, Archana Sa from Medable, Shalan Beg from Science37, and a friend Hassan Kadim from uh, Bristol-Myers. So follow the the room here, keep on joining us. And uh, again, my thanks to everyone for joining today. Stay well, enjoy the weekend.